our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Human Circus. Please continue listening after the episode for a short message of tremendous importance. Welcome back to Human Circus, and welcome back to my series on the life and times of Thomas Dallum, with the emphasis thus far squarely on the times and the life aspect rather lacking. Today, in exciting news, Dallum has arrived. At last, he will leave London for the court of the Sultan, Mehmed III, and we'll be talking about it. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you won't know why this is so exciting for me. But you see, I initially picked out Dellum's story as an interesting one to cover back when I was talking about Schiltberger and Timor. I thought this would make a nice one or two parter. A man sails to Constantinople with an organ, quick and easy. Further reading on the subject led to what was basically a six-episode prequel on Elizabethan engagement with the Islamic world and on how those worlds were not so distinct as we might imagine. A story within the story of 16th century globalization, you could say. But now it's Dalem time. There'll be sailing and piracy in the sight of new lands. First, though, let's recap. And let's not be exhaustive about it. Let's just keep in mind that in Constantinople, Mehmed is sultan, though some portion of the real power was said to have rested with his mother, Sophia, and even with Sophia's financial agent, Esperanza Malkai, at this time not yet murdered by the palace cavalry. The English ambassador, Edward Barton, has died, and his successor, Henry Lello, is waiting anxiously for the appropriate gifts to be sent from England the gifts without which he will not be able to present himself to the sultan and be recognized as an ambassador for Queen Elizabeth. And the gifts were late, embarrassingly, appallingly late, not just because they were needed so that Lelo could have his audience with the sultan, but also because some material acknowledgement was really required, showing that Mehmed had become the sultan. A congratulations card of sorts was in order, and it was long, long overdue. Edward Barton had literally died waiting for it. Mehmed had become sultan in early 1595, and Dalem leaves in 1599. It's a bit of a gap. And Lello, holding it all together in Constantinople, was, though apparently a well-educated man, not the energetic and charming fellow who'd come before him. His nickname was actually Fogg, on account of his melancholic character, and he seems to have inspired a certain amount of dislike, scorn really, for his awkward and anxious manner. You can see it in descriptions of him speaking to the Ottomans, how he stood, quote, like a modest housewife and began a trembling speech in English, 
sounding like the squeaking of a goose divided into semi-quavers. Personality aside, Lello lacked the great depth of on-the-job in the Ottoman Empire experience that Barton had started with, and now, the English commercial agreements having lapsed with Murad's death, he was the one who'd need to renegotiate them. Something needed to be done, but how did Dalem come into this? Sadly, a lot of the details are missing here. Maybe Barton's suggestion, a rooster-shaped clock from Elizabeth's palace, inspired the idea of something clock-related. Whatever the thinking behind it, we do know that the Levant Company commissioned the item, and this is interesting in itself. It was undoubtedly important to both Crown and Company to smooth things over with the Ottomans. But, as had happened before, Elizabeth and her counselors were in no way going to be persuaded to foot the bill. So again, that was left up to the company. The company's contract was with a man named Randolph Bull, a London goldsmith, and he must have been responsible for the elaborate casing and the decorative elements, while Dalim took charge of the workings of the device. The results sound spectacular. It was an organ and a clock, five and a half feet wide, four and a half deep, and twelve to sixteen high, with a four-foot disparity between the initial specifications and Dalim's final accounting. There was to be a keyboard at which an organist could play, and four times a day it would play itself. There would be a 24-hour clock face and a 16-bell chime. Upon the corners partway up, two birds should be crafted to raise silver trumpets to their lips and blow. Higher, a holly bush of birds, which would sing and shake for their wings. Somewhere about the machine were to go the representations of seven planets, each to appear at their time and present their symbol. The base was to be made of oak and raised above the ground by five bronze lions. All about were to be decorative friezes, pillars, and turrets. And there was more. A bejeweled Queen Elizabeth was to be surrounded by eight men and a pair of angel trumpeters to flank her. Above that was to be a human head topped by a rooster, something I've seen and been confused by on a building in Prague, with crescent-marked pyramids to either side. And the list of clockwork movements that should be produced starts to get absurd. The true movement of the moon, armed men striking a great bell at noon, the eight figures around the queen bowing toward her in turn and being acknowledged by a movement of her scepter, an angel turning an hourglass, and so on and so on and on and on. But we don't know how much of this made the final design. Dalum does mention birds, silver trumpeters, planets, and, quote, diverse other motions, so it's up to us to imagine, but you should imagine something pretty impressive. In November of 1598, the organ made its first grand performance at the London Banqueting Hall. It was a canvas-top pavilion, but we should not think of the kind of thing you might now rent for an outdoor event. This was painted, garlanded, featured exotic fruits of all kinds, tiered flooring, and 292 glass lights and it apparently took three weeks for 375 men to build. The temporary structure stood from 1581 until the fourth year of King James' reign. It would have been a grand setting for the organ's performance, but the performance too, we will have to imagine. Before an audience composed of the queen, her court, and her merchants, perhaps others, the machine proved its worth as the kind of prestige present that they wanted to impress the sultan with. And Dalem, its presumably proud creator, said basically nothing of it, 
at least not in the portion of his writings that we know of. He will allude to the event, remarking here or there that, having performed for the Queen, he has nothing to worry about in later challenges. But that's all he has to say about what must have been a pretty special moment in his life. Who was this Thomas Dallum? Unfortunately, Dallum's background is difficult to trace in any great detail. We know what he went on to become in terms of his great success in the business of organ building, notably an organ for King's College of Cambridge and for Worcester Cathedral, and we can see that success transmitted down through his son's and grandson's accomplishments in the same field. But of his past, there is less. I have seen it suggested in one source that his family may have been recusant Catholics of noble lineage, but I have not seen that claim repeated. We do know that he was from Lancashire, born around 1575, and that he moved to London where he entered the worshipful company of blacksmiths as an apprentice, and became a liveryman, a free man with rights to wear that guild's uniform or insignia. Surely he must have thrived, must have achieved success of some kind to have drawn the Levant Company merchants' attention when they came to commission the all-important gift. Or perhaps his inclusion on the project was always an afterthought. That original contract was, after all, not with him, but with the goldsmith. Maybe Dallum's addition came later. At some point, they must have been decided that he should actually accompany his creation, it doesn't seem to have been in the initial plans, or at least Dallum did not know of those initial plans. He writes of having to make his preparations in a rush and without the benefit of advice. But his making the journey made sense. The organ was a fairly delicate instrument, complete with a multitude of moving parts, and it was going to be dismantled and carried to Constantinople by sea. Of course its maker ought to go with it. And he would not go alone. He would take his mate, John Harvey, responsible for the clockwork elements, Roland Bucket, a painter and a son of a London shoemaker, and Michael Watson, a joiner who I've seen described as a timid and fearful fellow. Whatever their shortcomings, the small crew would be responsible for making the present look appropriately presentable at the end of its ocean voyage. If our picture of his early years is incomplete, his hurried arrangements for departure are pretty clear to us, thanks entirely to Dallum's wonderfully scrupulous accounting. It's how the text of his travels begins, in fact. In pounds, shillings, and pence, he records an itemized list of expenses. So we know, for example, that he got one hatband for four shillings, two pence, but spent much less on the second one, only one shilling. We know that he spent quite a bit on clothing, actually, one pound two shillings on a suit of sackcloth to wear at sea, and one pound eighteen on a presumably nicer one. Three shirts reads one entry, and then six shirts more another. There are items for a dozen handkerchiefs, a pair of garters, and two pairs of stockings. Not many for a lengthy sea voyage, one might think. But on the other hand, he has three pairs of shoes which total up to the cost of his single hat. He also lists a chest to put everything in. One of Dallum's more expensive items is a pair of virginals, something like a small harpsichord, that he perhaps brought along for entertainment, but which will come to bear on his story. He takes along an arming sword, a one-handed weapon, and a number of knives, though the latter he seems to use as gifts on his travels. There are bars of tin, perhaps to be used in potential repairs on the organ, or perhaps in currency or trade. Finally, there is food, 
There is oatmeal, ten pence worth, but there are also spices and seasonings. Sugar, nutmeg, mace, cloves, and pepper, along with oil and vinegar and prunes and raisins. Dalem evidently planned to augment his diet while aboard the ship, at least in flavor and fiber, if not much in nutrition. And of course, most of these foodstuffs, which he was now carrying from England, would have had to have been shipped there in the first place. I find this a really interesting detail, actually. That already, in the 16th century, a London craftsman might be so attached to the use of imported spices like mace and nutmeg as to not leave them behind when traveling. Dalham's final items on the list are for lodgings. At Gravesend, at Deal Castle, at Dartmouth, at Plymouth, and then one at Argier in Barbary. Algiers, in fact. But there we're getting ahead of ourselves a little. Dalham hasn't left England yet. But he's about to. He departs from London on the 9th of February, a Friday, he tells us, and joins the Hector, his ship, at Gravesend. He loads his chest aboard and then passes some days in town, waiting for the Hector and its cabins to be made ready for passengers. By the afternoon of the 13th, all is ready, and they sail along the coast to Deal, north of Dover, and wait there four days for a wind to take them, an immediate reminder of how dependent they are upon nature. And the wait is too much for some. When the wind came, it was nighttime, and Dalham tells us that some of the company had taken to drinking too merrily in the town. A man was dispatched to gather them up, but one of the Hector's five trumpeters was past the point of reason, or maybe he'd just come to his senses regarding the relative merits of life on the waters. He locked the door of his chamber, and when the man from the ship called up to him from beneath his window, he called down a series of insults in response. Much, I imagine, like the French soldier in quest for the Holy Grail. This was one trumpeter who would not be going to sea. For the rest... The wind serving well, they sailed merrily by Dover, and so along the sleeve, the ship's remaining musicians playing their farewells. Yes, dear listener, Thomas Dallum has left England. He will not have to wait for foreign lands to find adventure. Roughly thirty leagues to sea, he writes that a contrary wind came up and stormed marvelously for eight and forty hours. They were not far from home, but already they had lost the Lanaret, the vessel which was to accompany them as far as the Adriatic. And soon, in a stormy night and a foggy day, in which they could not see the sun, they had lost themselves. As the sky finally cleared, they recognized their position, all but upon the rocks, rocks which Dalham misleadingly identified as lying between England and Ireland. In imminent danger, His description here is quite wonderful. Then our mariners did labor to get into the main ocean again, but the storm not altogether ceasing, but the fog more increasing, we were the next day at a non-plus again, not knowing where we were, but being under sail and the fog very thick. Upon a sudden we saw the sea break against the shore, the which was very great rocks, And we were so near the shore that it was not possible to cast about in time to save ourselves from shipwreck. But it pleased Almighty God so to defend us from harm that we're just before the harbor at Dartmouth, a very straight entry betwixt great rocks that are on both sides of that entry. Then we are all very joyful and entered in there willingly. Thomas Dallum, February. 
We won't often hear Dalim thank God or attribute much of anything to his doing. But here, on the brink of disaster, in home waters, he does. Perhaps it being near his home made it easier and more natural to see the actions of God in a recognizable world than it will be elsewhere later. Or maybe, as we'll come to see, Dalim's world was simply put, less permeated by God than Schildberger's had been, just two hundred years before. But we'll get to that. At Dartmouth, they sent out riders up and down the coast, and they heard news of the Lanaret. Apparently it had lost its topmast in the storm, been chased by privateers known as Dunkirkers, and had run aground in efforts to evade them. Word had been sent that it would make its way to Plymouth, and there indeed they found it, but they also found further signs of trouble. And yes, they still hadn't really finally, completely left England. In the Plymouth Sound was a little caravel, and as the Hector made its way out on March 16th, the caravel's occupants recognized the larger ship and sounded a trumpet to request a parley. Two sailors came across and boarded the Hector, and their information was not encouraging. It seemed that they had previously been on a much larger ship, a man-of-war from Plymouth named the Plough, but the Plough had been taken by seven ships of Dunkirkers, the same who had chased the Lanaret, and those Dunkirkers knew of the Hector. They had demanded information on its whereabouts from the Plough's crew, killing some to loosen the tongues of others. Where was the Hector? Had it departed yet? Then they were questions the unfortunate sailors of the Plough could hardly answer. Many of those sailors were now missing, and to just six, the Dunkirkers had given the caravel and sent them on their way. One wonders why, actually, what the six had done to earn this odd bit of generosity. But in any case, the two survivors on board the Hector concluded their story by urgently warning the Hector's master not to go to sea, not without a great company at least. And it seemed sound advice. Perhaps, to ask of it by name, the pirates knew something of the Hector's purpose. Or maybe they needed only to know of it as a ship which traded in far-off Ottoman lands, to guess that it would yield a rich cargo. Either way, the Hector was now hunted by pirates, seven sails worth, and well before it reached the anticipated dangers of corsairs or Spanish privateers on the Mediterranean Sea. So naturally, the ship's captain proclaimed that he would not stay one hour for any more company than God had already sent him, and... Ignoring all warnings, the Hector sailed forth, with the Lanaret quickly falling well behind it. By eight the next morning, three sails were spotted, and soon after, another four. Evasion was likely possible, but the captain deemed it best not to show themselves as cowards. The wind could always turn against them, and then the Dunkirkers would only be encouraged in their attack. Instead, they prepared for contact. The gunners made ready their ordinances, the cloths known as fights were hung about the middle of the ship to conceal the men, and muskets and bandoliers were handed out to all. Then they turned to confront their would-be pursuers. It was not an inexperienced man in charge. He's never mentioned by name in Dallum's text, but the master of the Hector was Captain Richard Parsons. Dallum will grow to despise him, but he seems to have been considered very capable and he'd sailed this way before, carrying William Harborn, England's first ambassador to Constantinople, in fact. And the ship he commanded was no easy pickings for pirates. As I've mentioned in a previous episode, there was less than you'd think separating a merchant vessel of this type from a man of war. 
and the great bulk of the ships which had faced the Spanish Armada had actually been armed merchantmen. The Hector, at 300 tons, was one of the largest class of those merchantmen, their construction subsidized by a government that knew well their value in national defense. It carried 27 guns, around half the larger nine-pounders, and the rest a mix of smaller pieces. As the two sides closed, the captain had the Hector swing about so that the Dunkirkers should see for the first time its full length and complement of gun ports. As he'd hoped, the pirates, thinking they'd accidentally confronted one of the Queen's ships, turned and fled, with the Hector in pursuit. But the Hector was big and fast, and within a half hour had brought them into range of its guns. Three warning shots were given without effect, so the master gunner was ordered to shoot his next through the admiral's mainsail. And this did have effect, and the seven ships were ordered in alongside the Hector under threat of sinking, and herded reluctantly along, all the while their crews largely keeping out of sight below decks. If Captain Parsons had thus far acquitted himself admirably in fending off threats both natural and otherwise, it was right here, in the aftermath of the Dunkirkers' event, that Dallum's opinion of him permanently soured. When three of the Dunkirkers' captains came aboard, a member of Dallum's crew saw that one carried beneath his arm a good long money bag full of something. And as the three went with Parsons into his cabin, the muttering amongst the men would have been deafening. Meanwhile, the Dunkirker sailors who'd brought the three captains aboard were standing about the deck, presumably idly smoking and trying not to look nervous or something similar. And one of the Hector sailors steps forward and says, I know this man, he's an Englishman. And the pirate denies this, denies everything, denies being able to speak or even understand English, and of course he does all this in perfectly good English. And now curiosity is spreading and a mate and a few others have taken some sailors for a look round three or four of the ships. So that just as Captain Parsons comes out from his quarters to declare the ships to be carrying nothing but wine for the King of France, this exploration party returns to report quite loudly that the ships contain nothing but soldiers and a wide variety of weapons. Parsons is rather perturbed by this contradiction, angered and embarrassed before his crew. He sends the Dunkirkers on their way and reserves his irritation for his officers. And Dallum is not alone in his bitterness. In his view, and that of many on the ship, I'm sure, they'd had a fantastic opportunity to bring into England a prize in the seven ships like no other merchantman had managed, and the glory of its taking which would have been shared all round. What they'd got instead was that long money bag for the captain. Parsons had essentially taxed the pirate's plunder. In a kind of postscript to these events, Dallum writes that those seven ships, which they could so easily and profitably have brought in, were well known to have then robbed or taken sixty ships of England and other countries. Piracy was alive and well, and not only off the Spanish and Barbary coasts. Henceforth, Dallum's account of Parsons would be colored by disdain, and this would not prove to be an isolated incident of the captain putting his own interests first. For now, though, he had steered them to safety through both natural and unnatural threats. The 24th, there came an infinite body of porpoises about our ship, the which did leap and run marvelously. The 25th, we saw two or three great monstrous fishes or whales, the which did spout water up into the air, 
like as smoke does ascend out of a chimney. Sometimes we might see a great part of their body above the water. The calm did yet continue. Thomas Dallum, March. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. After the pirate incident, things seem to have settled down a little. Stanley Mays, in his book on Dallum, reports that he passed the time playing songs on his virginals. Songs like Watkins Ale, Malts Come Down, The Carmen's Whistle, and Whoop, Do Me No Harm, Good Man. The ship made progress, and Dallum was able to notice and enjoy things like infinite bodies of porpoises. On the 27th of March, a very fair wind brought them into the Mediterranean. Dallum noted the narrowness of the strait, the fairness of Tarifa on the Spanish side, and the high rocks of Ape Hill on the Moroccan, or as he terms it, barbaric coast. He points out Gibraltar, strong and fair to the view, and the many galleys and men-of-war that lie there. And like all English travelers to the Spanish coast, he marveled at the weather. In Plymouth, he writes, only eleven days before, there had been no sign of greenery on tree or hedge. But now, here, it was exceedingly hot, and the trees on both sides were very green and full-blown. Dallum wondered at the difference in such a short time. During the following days, he named more towns and cities as he passed them. Marvels and Malagan, or Marbella and Malaga to us, admiring the soil and climate nearly 400 years before his fellow English would flock to you and overrun the same stretch of coast. On the 30th of March, the Hector entered the harbor of Algiers, nominally under the control of the Ottoman Sultan, Algiers had, and would long have, a fearsome reputation for piracy, ship-taking, and enslavement. English merchants had sought to exploit it as a trading center, but found it hard-going. Dallum describes Algiers in some detail. It's his first chance to set foot on foreign soil, and our first chance to read Dallum, the travel writer. It made a very fair show, he wrote. Fair, you may now be realizing, being his descriptive of choice. It lay close to the sea, strongly walled upon a very upright hill, and looking very much like a topsail. Its buildings were made of stone and lime, and most of them covered with plaster of Paris. The streets were tight and not easy to pass through, so narrow that a man on top of one flat roof might be able to cross most of the town from rooftop to rooftop, an image evoking hundreds of movie chase scenes in the minds of Dallum's future readers. At the request of the ship's surgeon and physician, 
the delightfully named Mr. Chansey. Who wouldn't want a Dr. Chansey? Dallum and three or four others accompanied Chansey inland to gather roots and herbs. On the foraging expedition, he again marveled at the weather and what it had produced, the corn, wheat, and barley, and the young oranges and apples. And he saw this and more brought into the town's markets by the moors and other peoples driving asses. He writes of their shouts and warning to the people on the road ahead, calls of Balok, Balok, to his ears at least. He notes great numbers of Jews and larger numbers of Turks, but he does not bother describing them. He does, on the other hand, write of the Moors, their clothing and the weapons they carried, their darts and their bows. Dalem also writes of the plentiful baths, the cookhouses for the dressing of meat, which he speaks highly of, and the prices in the markets, which he views very favorably, particularly for partridge and quail. Continuing with the bird theme, he refers to the local method of artificially hatching chickens, a method he says he, quote, cannot plainly describe, but hereafter may, if God permit. But God never does permit. It's one of Dallam's maddening habits that he often puts a topic aside for later, promising further description down the road, further description which never materializes, at least in the document that has come down to us. At this early stage of the journey, Dallam is already overconfident in making generalizations about the people he encounters. The Turks, he says, drink nothing but water. The Turkish and Moorish women go about always with their faces covered, and it is said they are believed not to have souls. The men are very religious in their own fashion, and their mosques are very fine. They are, however, quote, all in general very covetous, and use all the policy they can to get from the Christians, lawfully or unlawfully, as much as they may. But if they were greedy, the real menace, he tells us, was the renegade Christian, a villainous figure who prowled the coasts in search of Christians he might sell into slavery. Dallam makes no mention of having met one of these, so we can assume he's here relaying the stories he's been hearing aboard the Hector. He's had little to do, after all, except play music and soak up naval jargon, as well as the tales of more experienced travelers and the rumors and hearsay traded among his fellow first-timers. There's a bit of excitement in Algiers before the Hector leaves town. The local ruler sends for the Hector's captain, and its gift for the sultan is embittered when only the former shows up and promptly locks away Captain Parsons, sending next for Dallam himself. However, when Dalem repeats Parsons' story, that assembling the organ would be a lengthy and difficult process, they are both released, and sent along with two bulls and three sheep, all of which Dalem deems to be excessively lean, leading him to ponder that the Turks think their worst things too good for Christian consumption. His interview with the irritated ruler must have been a tense affair. I doubt he would have minded all that much if Parsons had been stuck in Algiers for a time but I'm sure that's not what he had in mind for himself and the Hector. There's no hint of worry, though, in his tierce description of the meeting. Maybe his arrogance at having performed for the Queen of England, arrogance which will later be very much in evidence, sustained his nerves there in Algiers. Maybe the whole thing was so unpleasant that he simply didn't want to dwell on it in writing. On April 4th, the Hector departed unmolested from Algiers, the seventh brought the eve of Easter, and, Dallam writes, quote, 
We saw very strange lightning in the sky or in the air. It was very wonderful and strange, for we might see the air open and a fire like a very hot iron taken out of a smith's forge, something in likeness of a running worm, another time like a horseshoe, and again like a leg and foot. The city seems to have awakened a taste in Dalem for further adventure, and, as he watched the lightning storm from the ship's deck, he was determined to roam further at his next opportunity. For us, that next opportunity will be next episode. The Hector's voyage is going to continue on towards Constantinople. Dalem will wander a little further afield from its safety, and he'll succumb to the apparently irresistible desire of tourists in all eras and steal himself a little piece of antiquity. There'll be more piracy, most of it committed by the Hector, and there will be a string of interesting little intercultural encounters as Dalem navigates the new wide world with more boldness than knowledge. Until then. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, comments, childhood memories, or a topic you'd like me to cover, you can find me through Twitter at circus underscore human, or by email at humancircuspod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, and not just downloading it for use as a sleeping aid, I'm asking you to help me out in one or more of the following ways. 1. Tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell your boss. Making this podcast is more fun when more people are listening. 2. Please rate and review Human Circus on iTunes or other platforms where applicable. It takes very, very little time, and again, helps get more people listening. 3. If experiencing the podcast brings more pleasure than a subpar coffee, you can, I would even say you should, donate that coffee money instead to help keep the podcast going. That's helping cover hosting costs, pay overdue library fees, and keep your host happy and healthy. And you can find the donation link through the podcast website at human underscore circus dot dot com. Finally, and always helpful... You can keep listening. Human Circus will return. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. 
New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.